you've been following our Old Testament Bible calendar as we read through the Bible in a year, you know that we are now in the book of Joshua. Two Sundays ago, we looked at Numbers. Last Sunday, we looked at Deuteronomy. Now, we are in Joshua. And I wonder if you have been reading through Joshua or if you've read it through at some point in your life, what was the particular prism through which you viewed this book? Now, here's what I mean by that. There are many different ways that you can read Joshua as a kind of defining prism or perspective when you open your Bible and read it. Here's one. One prism is historical. This is truly a historical rendering of how God's people, the people of Israel, conquered the promised land. And maybe you've spent some time looking at maps and trying to figure out how the different tribes were assigned. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said, well, where does this tribe go? And where does that go track in modern-day Israel? And this tribe got the northern section, and this one got the section by the Mediterranean Sea, and this one got the one bordering the Jordan River. And you can go through it simply, purely, as a historical matter. And there's certainly truth and information, wisdom to be gleaned from that. Another way that you could view the book of Joshua at the same time is through the prism of God's promises to his people. This is one of the dominant themes of the book of Joshua. How did God fulfill a promise that he had made hundreds of years previously through his covenant people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Abraham, you one day, your people will fill this land that you are standing in right now. And you see through the book of Joshua, God fulfilling his covenant promises. And it would be a very good and very appropriate prism for you to read through the book of Joshua, even as we're doing right now. There would be another way you could look at the book of Joshua. You could look at the book of Joshua as a kind of allegory, a kind of picture. You remember in the book of Hebrews, in chapters 3 and chapters 4, God, through the author of Hebrews, provides a warning to Christian people. He says, beware. Just like in the Old Testament, there were people that never entered into the promised land. They fell in the wilderness through their unbelief. You beware, lest there's a promise being left you, you don't enter in. And you can read through the book of Joshua as a kind of allegory for our Christian experience. Crossing over, if you will, the Jordan River into a land of rest. And now, even as we enter into the land of rest that Jesus has given us by faith in him, we have to fight. We have to battle. We have enemies that we are seeking to drive out of our lives. Victories that we're seeking to win in our own battle against sin and the effects of the world in our life. And we see ourselves fighting like the Israelites in the book of Joshua. That would be a, a fully appropriate picture for you to draw and to glean in your own reading. But I think as you know where I'm going, tonight I'm not going to look through any of those prisms. I want to look through the different kind of perspective and one of the dominant themes in the entire book of Joshua. Not God's covenant promises to his people being fulfilled. That's true. Not an allegory of the Christian experience in 
battling for control of the land of rest that God has given us spiritually, that as well, while helpful not tonight. Tonight, I want to look specifically at Joshua. At the name of the book, Joshua. Because one of the themes of the book of Joshua is God's leadership through his leader. God's leadership through his leader. And what I want to look at in particular tonight is from Joshua chapter 4. After God has brought the people miraculously through the Jordan River, I want us to see what God has done to his leader. Will you notice with me in chapter 4 and verse 14? Verse 14 says, On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him. The idea there is not a trembling fear. It's not like we're scared of you. The idea is they revered him. They respected him. They honored him as they feared or revered or honored Moses all the days of his life. The title of the message tonight is simply this, The Exaltation of God's Leader. The exaltation of God's leader. And what I would encourage as you read through the book of Joshua in our Old Testament Bible reading or the next time God leads you to this book, read it through that prism. The exaltation of God's leader. We're going to break this, as we often do, into three parts. First, we're going to look at the unique challenge that was facing Joshua. We're going to look, secondly, at the conviction that was confronting the people. And third, we're going to look at the completion, what God did to magnify, to exalt Joshua in the eyes of the people and hopefully draw some conclusions for each one of us. First of all, the challenge. What was the challenge that Joshua confronted as the leader of the people of God? And children, I'm going to say to you in our trivia, our quiz time tonight, you're going to need to think about Joshua. You're going to need to think about what God's job was for him. And you're going to need to think about how God helped him accomplish that job in his life. I've given you a preview. That's all you need to know for now. First of all, what was the challenge? It was the challenge in who he was replacing. The prophet that he was replacing. The challenge is this. Moses cast a pretty big shadow? A pretty big shadow? Listen to what Deuteronomy 34 says about Moses after it records his death. This may have been Joshua himself who wrote these words at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. He says, And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now, if this were, just, just give me a little ground for speculation here. Give me a little room. If this were Joshua writing that wor th those words, and he said, and there arose not a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Who's he, who's he including? Himself. I'm not him. Joshua knew that. Now, I know a little bit something, just a little bit something, about 
uh, replacing a very beloved leader and a very beloved man. I can tell you it is a very unique challenge because just like Joshua confronted, here was a man who the people of Israel had a kind of unparalleled respect for. They knew him as a man who was uniquely situated by God to be the leader. Those were big shoes to fill. But what's also unique about it is not only the prophet he was replacing, but the characteristics of the people that he would be leading. Here's the remarkable thing for me. As unique a prophet as Moses was, how did he do at controlling the children of Israel? Not terribly well all the time. So much so that he was driven to God and said, God, just kill me. I can't do this. Just kill me. The greatest, in a sense, human leader, short of Jesus of Nazareth, for what he did taking millions of people through the wilderness for decade after decade after decade with this singular divine stamp of approval on him. This was a rebellious people who didn't even obey Moses. How were they going to obey a lesser leader like Joshua? Numbers chapter 16. Listen, I'll just remind you. Even as to Moses, on the, to, on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. This was after the rebellion of Korah, when the earth opens up and swallows Korah and his entire family and their compatriots. And what's the response of the children of Israel? Hey, stop killing God's people. That, of course, led to that famous scenario where God requires them to each, each have 12, each have a rod, the prince of each tribe of the people have a rod. There's 12 rods. Aaron's rod is in the middle. Aaron's rod the next morning is budded and growing all these flowers. And God says, you, you, keep, you keep that rod. Hold on to it. That's going to shut them up. They're going to be quiet after they see this. But this is the very nature of the Israelites. They didn't obey Moses. How are they going to obey Joshua. This is, I think, multiplied by the fact that Joshua had already been humiliated in the eyes of the people. You say, when? Well, you remember the spies. The 12 spies of which Joshua was one. Do you remember after the 10 spies gave their evil report that Joshua and Caleb stand up and say, whoa, whoa, time out. No, believe in God, trust in God. The people are going to be meat for you. you. You can go right in and take the land. You can do it. God is with you. And do you remember what the Israelites did? Numbers chapter 14 records, but all the congregation bade stone them with stones. Well, God stepped in and God vindicated Joshua, but Joshua had already if you will, experience this public rejection in the face of the congregation, how is this guy going to be the one to step in and lead the people of Israel into God's promised land? Not to mention there was an incredible campaign of warfare that was ahead of them. If the Israelites got discouraged just wandering in the wilderness, how were they going to do going battle after battle after battle after battle all the way across the entire land of Israel? This was a mammoth challenge for anyone, much less someone trying to fill the really big shoes of Moses. It was a very unique 
challenge. But secondly, I want us to look at the fact that there was the need for a conviction. A conviction. Now, I want us to just work through a couple passages here together to understand the development of what God was doing to establish and to exalt his man, his leader, Joshua, among the people of Israel. Start with Numbers. Numbers chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27. Two books behind the book of Joshua. Numbers chapter 27. Now, you'll recall that God has already disqualified Moses from going into the promised land. You did not sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel at the waters where you struck the rock rather than speaking to it like I commanded you. Your rebellion, your disobedience has forfeited your ability to be my leader taking the children of Israel into the promised land. And notice what he says. In verse 12, the Lord says to Moses, Get thee up into this Mount Abram and see the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. And when thou hast seen it, thou also shalt be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother was gathered, for ye rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin. Now notice how Moses responds. He says, Let the Lord, verse 16, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not a sheep which have no shepherd. Now notice how God responds. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. I love that. Is the Spirit. And lay thine hand upon him, and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and give him a charge in their sight. Now listen to verse 20. And thou shalt put some of thine honor upon him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be, what? Obedient. You hear that? What is God saying? Moses, you take Joshua and you put some of your honor upon him. So for what purpose? So that the children of Israel will... Obey. So you've got this unique challenge. You're going to have to go conquer this entire land with this rebellious people and with a lesser leader standing in the shoes of Moses. How are you going to get those people to obey? By taking your honor, Moses, and putting it on him. So here God identifies the leader. The people see Moses blessing him, giving him a charge, putting some of his honor on him, and saying, this is the one who God has chosen. And I want us to see, in addition to this identification, I want us to look, secondly, at what I'm going to call the intention. Turn back to Joshua now, but look at Joshua chapter 1. How are the people of Israel going to respond to God's identification of a leader? Well, we see in Joshua chapter 1, God's charge to Joshua, be strong and have a good courage. You're the leader. I'm with you. You can do it. You can take this land. And then we see Joshua commanding the people. Joshua giving his charge, if you will, to God's people. But then look, look with me at verse 16 of chapter 1, will you? And the answer Joshua is saying, all that thou commandest us, we will do. And whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. According as we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. 
I want you to pause there for just a minute. How do you read those words? Notice there's a spoken intention. We will obey. We will do whatever you say. But did you notice the hedge at the end? Did you notice that? Only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. I hear in it a little bit of uncertainty. A little bit of a, let's hedge our bets. We're going to obey you, but just make sure God's with you like he was with Moses. Just make sure that you're, you're on God's side in all of this. I don't hear 100% conviction, perhaps a note of apprehension. Now turn to Joshua chapter 3. So you've got God's identification of the leader. You've got the people's spoken intention. We're going to obey you. We're going to follow you. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 5. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Speaking to crossing the Jordan River. And Joshua spake unto the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now listen to this. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. Now do you, did you make that connection? In chapter 1, the people said, We're going to obey you, just may, is God with you? Only the Lord be with you like he was with Moses. And in chapter 3, what does God say? I'm going to magnify you in such a way that the people are going to know. There's going to be no apprehension. There's going to be no doubt. There's going to be no wondering, hey, will, will God be with you like he was with Moses? No, they are going to know that God is with you. And now go ahead to chapter 4. Go ahead to chapter 4. The people have now gone through the Jordan River. They are now on the other side. And look with me at verse 14 again, will you? On that day, just like God promised, on that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. Now remember what God's initial identification of Joshua was. Moses, you put some of your honor on him so that the children of Israel will be what? Well, it's Numbers 27. Have you forgotten already? Obedient. Good. So that all the children of Israel will be obedient. And now what is the end in Joshua chapter 4 after they've gone through the Jordan River? God magnified Joshua and they feared him just like they feared Moses all the days of his life until his death. They held him in the exact same esteem that they had held Moses. In fact, you can go through the book of Joshua and you can see as a general rule the obedience of the children of Israel to God's chosen man. Perfect obedience? No, not all the people fought and drove out the inhabitants as, as deeply as they should. But general respect and obedience for God's leader? Yes, absolutely. Why? Because God did it. God exalted, God magnified his man. 
Now, do you, I just want to draw this connection for you really quickly. The connection between what you see in someone and your obedience to that same person. This is 100% true in work. You have a boss that inspires nobody, that is disrespected by everybody, and now see how that person is obeyed by his inferiors. It is at most a kind of lip service, a kind of obedience that is grudging, that is based solely on force and on fear. It's the only way that person can lead. I saw it in my sporting career. I had a coach, I'll go unnamed, I had a coach that the team just didn't respect. Didn't respect him. And it showed. They didn't think he knew basketball. They didn't think he played basketball. And, and it just, it, it, just it, it was a part of the fabric of the team. I remember when I coached fifth and sixth grade basketball, I was just out of college, and I knew I just had to do one thing. I was still at a stage in my life where I could dunk a basketball in a 10-foot hoop, and I went and dunked for the kids. And you should have seen, it was like I walked on water for the rest of the I just knew I just needed to do one thing to magnify, and those kids were like, let's go, we're ready, we're ready. What is it? You see it in sports, you see it anywhere. When the leader is magnified, when the leader is exalted, the people are inspired to obey. And remember where we've been so far. Just because a leader is identified, like Moses was identified, just because there is an intention to obey, we promise, we will obey, we will do it, it is not complete until there is the inspiration, the exaltation of that person in respect and honor that drives lasting obedience. Joshua needed to be exalted. Joshua needed to be magnified. Joshua needed to be elevated so that he would inspire obedience to the cause of God in his land and fulfilling God's covenant promises to his people. How did God meet the challenge of replacing Moses, this unique leader, with the rebellious people and a massive warfare campaign ahead? By elevating his man elevating and magnifying his leader so that the children of Israel would not just intend to obey, but so that they would be inspired to obey. You have the idea? I think you know where I'm going. Third, let's talk about a completion. The completion. God has brought his people through the Jordan River. They have placed 12 stones in the middle of the river so that the children of Israel won't forget. They have placed another 12 stones on the other side of the river in Gilgal as a second memorial of what God has done for this symbol of divine power. And now the people are in. They're going to fear, to revere, and honor Joshua for the rest of his life. But I want to point this out. As you probably know, Joshua is a type. Joshua is a type of the great New Testament leader for all of God's people. In fact, did you know, you probably knew this, the name Jesus is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew name 
Joshua. When the angel came to Mary and to Joseph and said, you will name your child Jesus, it was simply the Greek name form for Yeshua in the Hebrew. Yeshua simply being a form of the name Joshua. Now, it's interesting to note this type that God himself had a hand in. What did Joshua's parents name him? What did Joshua's parents name him? Oshia. Oshia, that was Joshua's given name. In fact, we read in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 16, if you want to check and you can, you can test me out, Numbers 13 and 16 says, And Moses called Oshia the son of Nun, Jehoshua. Who gave him the name Joshua? Moses did. You say, why does that matter? Do you know what the word Oshia means? It means salvation. Do you know what Jehoshua or Joshua means? It means God is salvation. God saves. Do you think Moses had any idea that in giving Joshua a new name that would not only be a representation of his own role, but that one day would look forward hundreds of years to the birth of Jesus Christ, who, as was testified to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, you will call his name Jesus, Joshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. Joshua is a type of Jesus the Messiah, the New Testament Joshua who came to deliver his people from their sins. In fact, Acts chapter 7 in verse 45, maybe you've read in your King James Bible in verse 45 that Joshua is actually expressly called Jesus. It's just the same way. It's just the same way the Hebrew Joshua is transliterated and translated into the Greek as the word Jesus. So what I want to do tonight as we close is take what we've learned about Joshua and apply it to the New Testament, Jesus. Now, where am I going with this? I want you to think about the same unique challenge that all of us have. You have a war ahead of you. You have a battle as we talked about in our baptism class today, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are fighting a war. We have a ground to claim. But God has given us a captain. God has given us a leader. We read about this in Hebrews chapter number 12. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 2 calls him the captain of our salvation. Why? Because he's your leader. 
because he is your chief general. Because he is the one whom God has appointed to go before you, directing you and leading you in the battle that God has set before you. Jesus is your general. And therefore what? Well, let's go back to Joshua. Joshua was exalted by God, magnified in the sight of all Israel, so that they would obey him. Now it tells me this. If you are going to obey Jesus in your life, it is going to be intimately connected to how magnified he is in your view. Let me say that again. Your obedience of Christ in day-to-day life will be intimately connected to how elevated he is in your eyes. Just like that boss who you obey when he inspires your loyalty and your affection. Just like that parent who inspires your obedience, who inspires your loyalty by their daily example of love and leadership. Just like that basketball coach who inspires you to give a little more and try a little bit harder by their example, by their leadership. Jesus now is the one who has been exalted of God, who has been magnified so that in looking to Him and being inspired by Him on a daily basis, you will follow Him unquestioningly and unblinkingly in anything He sets before you. Now notice, I'm looking out here across Straight Gate Church and I am seeing I undoubtedly many people who have the intention to follow him, the intention to obey him. Just like in Joshua chapter 1, these people said, Joshua, we promise, we're going to obey you. Just make sure that God's with you. Friend, it is not enough for you, have the, to, for you to have the intention to obey Jesus. Kids, It is not enough for you to say, I think I'll obey Jesus. I want to obey him. It's not enough. Your intention to obey Jesus is insufficient without the inspiration that comes from his exaltation in your eyes, from being magnified in your sight. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2 says. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. When you see Jesus, does he fill your vision as someone crowned with glory and honor? Is he magnified in your sight? Do you know there's two ways to magnify something? Think of a microscope. A microscope magnifies something that's really small and makes it really big. But there's something else. There's a telescope. A telescope makes something that's really big look as big as it is. You get the difference? A telescope sees something that's really, really big way out there in the distance and makes it really close. And the magnifying that is going to be central to your spiritual life and my spiritual life is the kind of telescope 
the kind of sight of Jesus by faith that makes him really, really, really big, as big as he actually is in our sight, in our perspective. I want to turn to one place in our New Testament where to see what this actually looks like in the life of a community. Turn over to the book of Acts, will you? Turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 19. There's this wonderful phrase here that I think can help us. This is in the city of Ephesus, where Paul has come and proclaimed the gospel. God has been working special miracles by Paul. We remember the story of the sons of Sceva, those ones who attempted to pursue exorcisms, and they got that memorable response, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And they flee from the house with their clothes in tatters and wounded. And look at verse 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And listen to this. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, magnified. What does it look like in a Christian community when Jesus is magnified? Look what comes next. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts, witchcraft, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. What does revival look like in your life and in my life? It's Jesus getting bigger and bigger and bigger in your daily vision in what you see in your life around you. What does revival look like in our church community? It's when collectively Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in what we see and what we do in our lives. And this is simply the question I ultimately just want to close on tonight. It's this. How big is Jesus in what you see? What I mean by that is, I don't mean when you're here at church on Sunday. I mean when you wake up tomorrow morning, how much is Jesus going to fill the perspective, the prism of your day? When you get home from work tomorrow and you settle into your easy chair or you get ready for bed at night, how much is Jesus going to fill your vision, fill your perspective? It is that amount. It is that perspective that will tell whether you will truly obey him and submit to him as your leader, as your Lord. Friend, think of Joshua. It is not enough that you identify Jesus as your leader. It is not enough that you intend to obey him as your leader. Unless the magnifying of Jesus by God himself has so filled your vision, has inspired you, that like Joshua, you will obey. You will revere. You will honor that name. As we were singing that hymn tonight, verse four, number 44, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Listen to verse number five. Weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought. Would you say that honestly about yourself? 
Weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought. Now listen to this. But when I see thee as thou art, when I see you as you are, I'll praise thee as I ought. Is Jesus magnified in your eyes tonight?